And I entitled this morning's message, How the Mighty Have Fallen. In order to do that, let me start with a couple thoughts. A bit of a longer intro to kind of sink in the point. Uh, I downloaded my first ebook yesterday. And I, I'm just kind of a paper guy. It's driving me, it's driving my staff crazy because I always like to have something in my hand. The whole idea of having everything in uh, electronics when I don't know how to fix it bugs me. Uh, my book rarely crashes at home, right? And so uh, if I want to read it, it's there on my nightstand, right? So I have a little bit of resistance to some electronic stuff. So um, I went into Costco the other day and I saw a book that I wanted to pick up. And it was 26 bucks. And I was like, well, I don't know if I want to pay 26 bucks for it. I'd love to see the content. And my wife says, well, why don't you download it on the iPad? And I said, oh, all right. So I went home and it was 13 bucks electronically. And I was like, sweet. Well, that worked out really well. And so I downloaded it. They never even asked me how to pay for it. It just downloaded. And I was like, whoa, that's awesome. Found out I ripped off my kid's uh, account right? My, <laughs> my kids had a little iTunes account for all their music and it just completely stole all their money. And, t- and I bought a book with it. So anyway, I, that, I'll have to apologize for that later today. But anyway, um, I, I downloaded J.C. Dugard's new memoir. If you know anything about J.C., uh, J.C. Dugard was abducted at the age of 11. She was held in captivity for 18 years. She was uh, hidden and trapped in a backyard of a man that was completely unhinged. His wife uh, helped him in that. Um, J.C. Dugard ended up mothering two of his children uh, living in the backyard. And two years ago, April 29, 2009, she was uh, recovered, brought back, and she's been spending the last two years healing. She wrote her memoirs. People had written books about her account, but she only recently did her first interview as she's been trying to heal through this. And in doing so, she wrote a memoir. Um, I'm only on page four, so I can't tell you how it goes. Um, However, uh, I know it's brutal. I'm not suggesting that you all read it. I'm just telling you what uh, I wanted to know about it was how does someone go through something like that and have the optimism or any level of health that she's expressing. I don't know what she's done in healing and therapy coming out of it, but whoever is leading her through that process needs to be praised because she is shockingly balanced after having gone through something like that. So to me, just as being a student of human nature and loving people, that captivated my attention. Now, her book, her memoir is called A Life Stolen. Many of us in this room have gone through very difficult things in our lives. Things that would shock the rest of you if you knew that. However, the vast majority of us in this room are not being held captive. We still have freedom to make choices for our life, how we spend our time, what books we read, what things we watch, what friends we connect with, what we invest in. We still have these freedoms. And although J.C. had those freedoms removed for 18 years, she now has to learn to live with the newfound freedoms. However, we are living every day with this opportunity. And so the big question is this, what are you doing with that freedom? 
What are you doing with the freedoms you have? You have all this ample space and opportunity to make decisions for you. What are you doing with that freedom? I mean, it'd be one thing if you were held captive, but you're not. You're wide open to making new friends and, and spending time here and spending time there. What are we doing with that freedom? Are we making good decisions? Are we living lives that are pleasing to the Lord? Are we looking backwards and saying, I'm very pleased with what I've done? Another side note. Yesterday morning, Amy Winehouse was found dead in her home in England. Many of you don't know who Amy Winehouse is. She became famous for the song Rehab, that she's not going to go to rehab. If you remember, she won five Grammys. Known for her tone, she was very big in kind of the underground jazz circuit and the uh, soul side of things. And she will not be remembered for her Grammys. She will not be remembered for her tone. She will not be remembered for anything other than the rehab song and the fact that she just had to pull herself off tour because she was incoherent on stage. She's so involved in drugs and alcohol that she was a complete mess all the time, showed up in all the papers, completely trashed all over the place. They don't know the cause of death. She's 27 years old full of promise, will be remembered for none of it. So let's reflect for a moment. We're writing our memoirs. Our time rolls up. What have we done that we are pleased about? Now, I want you to be honest about this question. As you roll back in your life and think about things that you went, man, I'm really glad I made that decision. I want you to be honest. I don't want you to give the churchy answer. I want you to give the honest answer. Some of your answers may have nothing to do with church whatsoever. You may literally say things that go counterculture. For example, you'll say, you know what? When I was uh, in my 20s, you know, uh, my whole family wanted me to go to school. I decided to say no to school and I decided to pursue a music career. It didn't work out for me. But I'm really proud that I made the choice to go for it so that I would know and not have to live with regrets. I feel really good about that decision. Now, that is not a churchy answer. That's not the responsible thing to do, whatever, because I believe that whatever you would mark out as significant that you did, underlying that decision is something very important to you. So let's examine different ways that we can look at our lives. I mean, you can look at time spent. You can look at money. So let me talk about money for a second. For... Most of my life, I've worked, right? I worked rather young, and I've been working ever since. And I try to think back to what have I purchased that has high value for today? Or what have I merely consumed and thrown out, right? And it's very hard to think of real good things that I've done with my money. I mean, it may be um, investing in your first home that you were able to parlay into the home that you have now. And you went, that was a really good sound investment. Great, that's awesome. Think about that. What I found intriguing was that for years, I did not understand missions very well. And we've been talking about missions. As a matter of fact, there were elements of how church runs missions that really irritated me. 
When I became a pastor, I really had to come head to head with my greatest irritation, which was fundraising. I don't like it. I don't like the fact that someone's going to go on a mission and then they have to ask everybody else to pay for it. To, that just It bothered me. And as a pastor or being in ministry, I just got hundreds of these letters all the time. And it really, I, I constantly was getting agitated about it and going, well, there's got to be a better way. How can we do it? And we've even tried to work as a church to adjust it. And then I, along the way, whether out of guilt or whatever, I ended up giving money to people going on missions. And I found something rather unusual and rather awkward for me. The money I gave for someone to go on a mission is some of the only money I've ever counted well invested. It is the only money that had lasting value. Everything else I tend to consume. And all of it was well done. I don't regret one dime I've ever invested into the missions or into the ministry that someone was involved in. So for you, I don't know what it is for you. I began to realize that in that missions process, when all these letters went out, it actually, whether for whatever reason, it was agitating people into investing into something they would later be pleased about. And I went, oh, that's a different way to look at it. So what is it in your life? What, what are you doing? How are you living your life? How are we living our lives? What choices are we making with all this freedom that we have? Are we living lives that are pleasing to God? Are we living for the Lord? Are we growing in love for Him? Are we wasting our time? Because we were built, and this is something that I talk about ad nauseum, we were all built with a design by our Creator. If we are not fulfilling that design, meaning living a life of worship where God matters, then there's going to be a tension and a frustration. So the fill in the blank in front of you is the most basic I can put it. It's this. It's a waste to live for anything other than God. You don't get more simple than that. It is a waste to live for anything other than God because you will not find your purpose. You will not find meaning apart from God. It's just not going to happen. Now, because I know that some of us are here in this room, whether we were cajoled to be in this room or whether or not we were bribed or forced to be in this room, we are in this room and we have yet to make a commitment of saying, God, it's all you and not me anymore. So I want you to listen to the message this morning. And at the end, I'm going to give you an opportunity to commit your life to Christ. It's not a manipulative thing. Because honestly, if God is not moving on your heart and you don't own it, it's not going to matter. If you own it, we're going to pray together and we're going to talk about it. But I, I cannot let you leave this morning talking about lives that matter without giving you an opportunity to make some changes, right? It only makes sense. Would you turn with me to 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel chapter 31, it is page 252 in the Bible's handed to you. 1 Samuel chapter 31. If you remember, we're going through 1 and 2 Samuel, but make no mistake, there was never a 1 and 2. It was always just Samuel. That change didn't occur until the Greek translation came into play, the Septuagint. Other than that, it was always just Samuel. So it's a fake change. 
However, in our Bibles, it's separated out when we shift from Saul over to David. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to bridge that gap. We are going to go chapter 31 of 1 Samuel and chapter 1 of 2 Samuel and smooth right on through. So let me give you a little quick recap on where we've been. If you remember where we left off last time, David was lining up for a big war that Israel was going to have against the Philistines. Now, David happened to be on the wrong side. He was on the Philistine side and he was thinking, oh, no, how am I going to get out of this? God gets him out of it, sends him home. But when he gets home, the Amalekites had wiped out his town. So he had to go down and beat up on them and come back. So he's back home now, having won his war, but the big war still needed to happen. The Bible suggests that these two episodes were happening concurrently. While David is battling the Amalekite thing, Saul is leading Israel against the Philistines. So what we'll do is we're just going to read the first two verses and find out what's going on. But let me reminds you that do you remember the weird story about Saul consulting a medium a fortune teller do you remember this and he wanted her to conjure up Samuel do you remember that story when Samuel comes back from the dead irritated right he gives him an ominous prophecy to Saul he says first Samuel 28:19 the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Now, of course, he's dead. That's not a good sign. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. All right? So we remember that? That's the prophecy. Now, let me ask you a quick question. Who's going to win? They haven't fought yet. So Israel's going head to head with the Philistines. So let's look at the tail of the tape. If you are an MMA fan, mixed martial arts, or if you're a boxing fan, you'll remember what they do is they throw out the tail of the tape. And what they do is they have the two fighters. They put their little pictures up there and they say, this is their age. This is their height. This is their weight. This is their reach. This is their record. And you're supposed to, as a fan, go, ooh, I wonder who's going to win. This guy has a much bigger reach and he can do this and he can do that. But this guy has a better record and he's more seasoned as a veteran. And you're supposed to try to figure out who's going to win. So let's look at the tail of the tape. Israel's on one side. Philistines on the other. Israel has a better record. They beat up the Philistines pretty severely. Saul is an incredible military leader. He actually has in his family, it almost seems like great genes for killing people. Jonathan is one of the best warriors of all time, and that's his son. I'm assuming his other boys are just as good at killing people. Saul is bigger and taller, if you remember that. So he's got a reach advantage, right, on the Philistines, because their tallest guy, Goliath, is dead. So we now shrink him down a little bit, okay? So the tale of the tape is, but the Philistines have chariots, and if we get out in the open, they're going to be able to run in on them, so we've got to fight more in the mountains. So who's going to win? Now, we say Philistines. Now, here's what's funny. Some of you find the whole concept of analyzing it stupid. Why? Well, because God said the Philistines are going to win, right? Didn't he just say that? So why are we analyzing the tape? You go, well, that's, that's dumb. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. You know, it's funny that you read the Bible like that all the time, but you won't believe it for your life. 
it seems ridiculous to analyze the situation if God has already spoken. But not in your world. God has said things to be true and you keep going, I don't know, we'll see. I don't know, let me analyze it. Let's look at the tail of the tape here. All right? And God's going, what? What do you, have I not spoken? When I speak, and it's so funny that we read one way and live entirely different. Why is there such an inconsistency there? So, I guess we're going to find out what happens. Now, one other side note before we begin, and that is, from here on out, the books of First and Second Chronicles starts writing with us. So, we've been going through First Samuel. Only now, in chapter 10 of First Chronicles, we'll start going along and giving slightly different information, more perspective. Okay? So when I cite things that you look and you go, I didn't see that here, it may well be from the Chronicles account. The first nine chapters of Chronicles is all genealogy, which you're never going to read anyway. All right? So we're going to move on, hit it at chapter 10, and see what they add in there. So let's just read the first two verses. We'll pray for the word and dive into it. All right? Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. Well, there you have it. It's funny. It's exactly what God said. But now, the great king, the first king of the incredible monarchy of the organized Israel, is dead. How did he die? We'll talk about it. And now there seems to be a shift over to that good guy, David. The story of Saul wraps up very sad, in my opinion. And I think there's one key reason why. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your power to live differently. For many of us, Holy Spirit, you have quickened us to know that we ought to be living differently. And we lack the, either the ability to contain the flesh or the ability to put on the new man or we just flat out don't want to. Yet, Lord, you have made it clear in your word that if we live for anyone or anything other than you, we will die disappointed. Disappointing to you, which is most important. And so I pray that right now that we would have a come to Jesus moment and that, Lord, you would show us how we ought to live, that we might matter to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Let's take a look at something. I want to show you up on these screens here. I don't know if you're familiar with these, but did you know that there are such things as maps of the Holy Land? Now, now for 15 years of ministry, I have been pretending about a map. And I keep talking about maps, and then someone in the congregation said, why don't you actually use a map? And I went, oh, well, that's shocking. So we're going to use a map today. Um, I always had to draw an imaginary one. Now, if you can look on this map, this is what the area of Israel 
and up top is Mount Goboa. Now, the Israelites are going to lose up there, and Saul is going to die there. However, they're fighting against the Philistines. Where are the Philistines from? They're the yellow area down here. They're actually in the farthest south. So what in the world are they doing way up north? If they can wipe out the north, that means they've taken everything in the middle too. The Philistines have absolutely decimated the Israeli army. So they've taken this whole region. The only thing they don't have control of by the end of this story is this little south portion. Why? Because a schism had started between north and south. The south, known as Judah, was starting to lean towards a new leader by the name of David. David's little section in control is the only thing that is really the holdout. Everything else, including what's on the right side of the Jordan River or the east side of the map, they're even going to cave. So the Philistines are going to take over the whole section. That's a big deal. It says... And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. Quick question. How many sons does Saul have? It is not three. It is four. How many are named? Three. Where's the fourth guy? His name is Eshbaal. He is approximately 40 years old at the time of this story. Where is he? We have no idea. He will later be named Ishbosheth, and he will be a big deal in our next story that we're going to go into. Ishbosheth means man of shame. Is he renamed that because he was not in war when his dad and his three brothers all died in war together and he's doing something else? Is that why he received that name? I don't know. But for some reason, he didn't show up. But for all practical purposes, one of Saul's sons is next in line to be king. We all clear on how this king thing works? All right. Let's keep moving forward. How did Saul die? Well, it zooms in, backs up, and tells you. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. That word in Hebrew is writhing in pain. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. So right there, Saul says, hey, I'm not going to make it. I need you to go ahead and kill me because the Philistines are arriving very rapidly and they're not going to treat me well. Whether they torture me alive, which I'm not into, or whether they completely mutilate me dead, which I'm not into either. So what I would like for you to do is go ahead and kill me and just put me out of my misery. Now, why is he not just taking his own life at this point? It's because that was taboo in Israel. You don't do that. God is the author and giver of life. You don't usurp that authority. You do not make that choice. So he didn't do that. But watch what happens. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Now that's got to be frustrating. Hey, I'm seriously, I'm writhing in agony here. Can you help me out? No. Dang it. So hard to die good these days. It's really awkward. His armor bearers aren't working out real well for him. What was his last armor bearer in the story? That was David. (laughs) That didn't work out so hot either. 
So he's not having good luck with armor bearers. Now, an armor bearer is basically there to carry your gear, back you up in fights, and take care of whatever you need him to take care of. Why won't he kill Saul? Now, we can all say, well, it's because he was scared. If you kill the king, everyone's going to get mad and they're going to kill you. So maybe he's afraid to die. The answer to that is no. He is not afraid to die. How do we know that? Look at the next line. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell upon his sword and died with him. He's not afraid to die. The guy was ready to check out anyway. Why did he not kill Saul? Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. Now, all his men did not die. That is hyperbole. It means all those significant men that were in that current battle died with him because even his commander of his army, Abner, is still alive. And he's going to factor into our next story. They're not all dead. But everybody that was significant, that was leading that charge, died along with Saul. So let me ask you this simple question. Saul's death, heroic or cowardice? Depends on which commentary you read. Depends on which perspective you look at. Let's go the hero way first. Saul, tough as nails, goes out on the battlefield, fights a very serious battle. He's there with his sons, kind of looks cool. Everybody's in there. Like all the boys are in fighting together, right? And then Saul gets wounded. And instead of just kind of, you know, limping his way through it or anything else, he just starts getting into this big manly, kill me now, you know, kind of thing. And he's obviously not afraid to die. He's pretty tough. And so this great warrior is almost like at the end of the movie, you know, when you have everything dramatic and the sounds going and, and he's just like, run me through, you know, all this great heroics. So is he a hero? Well, it's possible. Yes. Was it cowardice? And you go, well, why would it be cowardice? I mean, this guy just went head to head with death and he's like, I'm out. Well, David, whenever David was ready to die, put it in God's hands and said, God will take care of this for me. I'm not making the decision. How this goes is up to the Lord. Is it cowardice? I'll tell you, I don't know the answer to it, but I can tell you this. Saul died the way that he lived. Saul lived complicated, and his death is complicated. And I can't seem to figure out what in the world's going on. Not only that, but Saul died like he lived in the sense that Saul lived by assessing situations and making rational, good decisions that he thought of. Saul was always trying to be in control of his life and do everything himself. So is it any wonder why when it finally came down to it, he said, fine, I'm going to go ahead and end it. I'll make the choice. God doesn't seem to factor in any of his decisions. Hmm. But it's exactly like Samuel said, you and your sons are going to come hanging out with me tomorrow. And they did. When the men of Israel who are on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan, if you remember, saw the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. Why is that significant? Because we're back to where we started, right? Philistines own the whole thing. Wow, it sure looks like Saul never even lived. Saul has reigned over Israel for decades. Saul has gone to the highest position that Israel ever had. 
He was on every cover of every magazine, on every TV show. He was on every internet site because he was the biggest deal ever. He had access and control to change nations. He won mighty battles and here at the end of his life, he may as well have never shown up on the scene ever. We've gone nowhere. The Philistines are back in control of the whole land. Well, that was useful. Thanks, Saul. Appreciate it. What's the point of that? Simply this. Men and women do not leave marks on the world. God leaves marks on the world. And if you are not living for God, we don't remember you existed. You go, well, that's not true. Terrible people that were not believers like Hitler and guys like this, they made a mark on the world. No, hold on. If God allowed them to be caught up and engaged into huge world plans that he has going on, there were marks in the world and we ended up attaching their name to it. But make no mistake, men don't have the ability to change the course of the universe. God does. If you are not living a life of worship, which is submitted and surrendered to God and tying in with his purposes that he built you for, it is very likely that at the end of your life, we're going to look back and go, what was that all about? We didn't do anything. There's no change. I mean, I understand all the world thinks you're a big deal. You'll pass away and nobody cares. Why? Because it's only God's purposes that radiate out. It is only God's values that he places on the world that matter. It is only the decisions that you align with the Lord that have long-lasting effect. That's why to live without the Lord in your life will allow you to go poof and you're like a vapor and nobody even remembers you lasted. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, if you look at the map there up north, heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, well, I just skipped the whole passage. That was awesome. How about we jump backwards to verse 8. The next day, there we are, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers through the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body and his sons, by the way, to the wall of Beit Shan. And we learn from Chronicles, they put his head into the temple of Dagon, the same place where they tried to put the Ark of the Covenant, and God kept knocking down the statue in front of it. Same exact temple. These are all ways of displaying victory. Now, the wording there is very unusual. It says, and they went out and they sent messengers to proclaim the good news. Does that sound like anything you're familiar with? Okay, when the Bible and Jesus and his followers began to talk about the gospel, it means good news. And when he would talk about apostles or those that are sent out or messengers or witnesses or angels... We are those that are going out and telling the good news. The Philistines were supposed to run all over their country and say, a mighty war has been won. We are on the winning side. New territory has been given to us. May we move into it now. 
That was their gospel, their good news. Is that not very similar to the message that we have been given? Jesus Christ died on the cross. He won the ultimate battle. He's given us new freedom to live in. We need to move into that now. Why would we not share that good information? That's the point of evangelism. But it says that these guys, Jabesh Gilead, are about to jump into the story here. And notice what they do. Uh, let's see. Mm-mm-mm. You know what? Before we get into that, let, let me show you something real quick. This is kind of cool. Bashan. Let's, let's go to this. I had an opportunity to go there in Israel. And it was one of the most impressive uh, archaeological discoveries I got a chance to walk through. Let's take a look. Do we have those photos back there, Gary? There it is. All right. Now, here's what we're doing. We're looking from on top of a little mountain area where the palace was likely, where Saul's body was hung. You look out over this. See the colonnaded streets? Now, this right here is a coliseum, which I'll show you a close-up in a moment. But way over here, a little dot way over there, is actually the Hippodrome. This city is so enormous, it's not even close to being contained. This is one tiny quarter of the city that has been uncovered. It's amazing. An earthquake really knocked it down. In Jesus' time, it was one of the ten cities of the Decapolis of the Roman Empire. The only city on that side of the Jordan, as a matter of fact. But to give you an idea of size of what you're looking at, let's take a close-up of this Colosseum. All right. This, when you're sitting on it, is a massive structure. Even this thing is probably two and a half stories tall. However, the earthquake knocked it down. There used to be two more of these on top of each other. So it was enormous. And equal was the seating. Another section of seats is right here, and another section of seats would go up there. This place was absolutely massive. Let's take a look at the third shot. On all these colonnaded streets, see how little people are? These pillars are huge. And so they would walk through. There was this marketplace along the way. And they had, um, when the earthquake hit, they had put all the dead bodies in different places. And you could tell what the stores were. Because when they uncovered it, all the wares were still in those rooms. Let's go to the next one. Now this, this right here, very, very important part in the city. This is the bathroom. Okay, now every city has to have a bathroom, and the reason why you can tell it's a bathroom is these are the toilets here on the right-hand side of your picture right there. Now, it's a little bit hard to figure out how they work, so let's go to the next slide. Oh, that's right, here they are. Now, I'd like to point out that sitting along with me are two elder candidates, Steve Burdick and Glenn blah, 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 blah. Now... <laughs> The funny thing about this is that these, you would put one cheek on one stone and one cheek on the other stone, and it was a place of meeting for the men. They would go in and have their business meetings and discussions in the restroom. So we were having very serious discussions on there. This has zero biblical value. Let's move to the next one. All right. Remember I told you from that one shot we were up on a hill? This is that hill. Okay? So when you're looking from this side up, do you see how massive this is? Now, this is layer after layer after layer of city. They've un not been uncovered. Those are all histories of different civilizations that are underneath that dirt right there. However, 
Up on top of this mountain is actually a monument to this story that we're reading right now. If you go up there, it tells the whole story. This is where Saul's body was laid. This is where his sons were hung on the wall, blah, 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 right? So the only interesting thing for me was that when we finished walking through this, we were running out of time and our team was told, you have, we were right here. And they said, you have seven minutes before the bus is going to leave. So if you want to go see anything that you haven't seen, you better do that now. We literally had to run because I was like, well, I want to see the top of the hill. So we ran as fast as we could up these stairs. We're like, ah, running as fast as we could all the way up there. And then we went, I got to see everything. So we ran around all over the top of the thing and then went, ah, and ran all the way down, all the way back to the bus. And I was tired. No biblical value. Let's move on. (laughs) Now we can all look at this and we can say, man, Saul died. Saul killed himself. Here's what's intriguing about Chronicles and their account. It says, 1 Chronicles 10, 13. So Saul died for his breach of faith. It just gets to the point. Listen, let's make no mistake. This was not a military victory. Something else was going on. Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord. He did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance from her, not from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Why did he die? God killed him. That's it. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care who God used to do it. God killed Saul. He's allowed him to live for decades leading, using him as an example of, hey, you can have a leader who looks beautiful on the outside, but internally does not live for me. We're going to go ahead and shut him down now and bring in the next guy, and I'll show you a different sort of leader. So going back to 3111, but when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul... All the valiant men arose and went all night, that's 10 miles away, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beit Shan. They came to Jabesh, burned them there, took their bones, buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Why in the world would these guys risk their lives? Where's my lame pen? These guys go all the way across the Jordan River under the cover of night, pull his body off the wall, burn it, and then bury the bones. Well, two reasons. Number one, the first act as a king ever that Saul did was rescue the city of Jabesh Gilead. The Ammonites had attacked it. They were threatening it. And they said, we're going to wipe you out. Says, and the Holy Spirit came upon Saul. He cut a cow into 12 pieces, mailed it around Israel and said, if you do not show up for this battle, I will come and get you. 330,000 men showed up for a war and they set this town free. That town never forgot that. Not only that, but if you go back into the story of Judges, you'll remember that Saul's tribe of Benjamin had been decimated and they needed more wives and they got them all from Jabesh Gilead. It's likely that Saul's mom was from this town. This is very personal to Saul. And they've always been personal to him. So when his body was hung up to be dishonored, mutilated, and embarrassed, they went over the cover of night, went in, risked their lives, ripped him down off the wall, and took him back home. Pick it up in chapter uh, 2, verse 1. 
After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, if you remember his whole story, David remained two days in Ziklag, that's down in the south on our map. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. So he's in mourning. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where'd you come from? He said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, so how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. Also, many of the people have fallen and are dead. Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? The young man who told him said, well, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. There was Saul leaning on his spear, meaning resting. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me. And I said, here I am. He said to me, who are you? I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. Wait, who did David just finish killing? Amalekites, all right. He said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and I killed him because I was sure that he couldn't live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I brought him here to my Lord. Something's weird about this story. Why? We just were told how Saul died, and there's no mention of an Amalekite anywhere. Why? Now, David doesn't know the other account. He could take this guy at face value. But we have two options. Either this guy is truthful, and we have a real weird combo story, which some commentaries run with. They tell the story like this. So Saul was out fighting and the archers shot an arrow and it hit him and he knew it was a mortal wound. So he turned to his armor bearer and said, I need you to kill me. The armor bearer said, no way, I'm not doing that because I'm not going to hurt God's anointed. You never touch that. I've learned that even from David that we've been chasing all these years. So I'm not doing that. So Saul said, fine, I'll do it myself. Saul runs himself through. Now he's been shot with arrows and ran himself through. But in a very Monty Python way, he's not dead yet. (laughs) Then as he's sitting there, an Amalekite comes by and the Philistines are closing in. And he's going, man, it is hard to die around here. So I'm going to ask the Amalekite, hey, can you kill me too? And then the Amalekite goes, sure, I will, runs him through again, and then he dies. That's one account. Or he's lying. Now, why would he be lying? What's the benefit? Here's the other weird thing. Remember where Saul died? He died on Mount Gilboa. That's in the north, right? Where does David live? Ziklag. That man just ran 90 miles. Why in the world are you running 90 miles to go give David, who's not a king, the king's stuff? Who is supposed to be the next rightful king? Saul's son. And he's not all the way down there. What does this Amalekite know? What is he up to? Why would he run all the way down there? Is he possibly going, you know what, I know that you're going to be the next king, so I wanted to bring you the stuff. Here's the most likely probability. He's an Amalekite. He knows darn well how David feels about Amalekites. And he's lying to try to get in good with David. He came upon this armlet and crown probably after everyone was slaughtered. He was the first one to get on the scene and saw an immediate opportunity. What if I go to the next guy who's likely going to rise up and take over the nation? What if I bring him the stuff of his enemy? Saul has always wanted to kill David. 
If I come in, do you think how excited David's going to be? He's finally out of it. Saul's out of the picture. David gets to move in. I'm the guy who brought the news. He's going to be like, whoa, right on. You know what? Are you doing anything? I'd love to make you a big deal in my cabinet, right? That's what this guy's waiting for. Let's read the story. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. So did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? He said, I'm the son of a sojourner, a foreigner, an Amalekite. David said to him, so how is it that you're not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Pause. Uh Uh-oh. So you work with Saul? Yeah, man, I'm in his camp. So you've been around him for a while, and you guys remember all the times that you chased me. Um, Real quick question, and why do you think that you are equipped to kill the king of Israel? Well, I don't think he expected that question. Now, if he lied, bad choice. If he seriously did, unfortunate for him. It says, then David called one of his young men and said, go execute him. So he struck him down that he died. David said to him, your blood be on your own head. For out of your own mouth, you have testified against yourself saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. I don't think that went like the guy thought it was going to (laughs) go. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said that it should be taught to the people of Judah. Why Judah? Because they're the only people that he has authority over. He has them all memorize this song as a tribute. I want you to understand his integrity. Saul has tried to kill him for years. Saul has kept him running. Saul has kept him in caves. Saul has made his life miserable for his whole adult life. When he dies, David doesn't have a party. David cries. David forces everyone to learn a poem about how great Saul was. Do you understand that David was mature enough to realize this was never about David versus Saul. It was a God thing. I don't know who you're going head to head with in your life and who you're always bitter about and who has ruined your whole adult life and who everything. Are you sure it's about you and that person? Or does God have something much bigger going on? David always had to pull back and go, Saul, I know you think I'm your enemy. I know you think I'm your problem. I'm not your problem. God's your problem. Quit coming after me. I'm not the bad guy in all this. I'm not your enemy. David had vision, he understood, he had a different perspective. And he writes this song about the one man who hurt his life the most. Listen to this. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. That's a book we do not have today. It is a missing book. It's also referred to in Joshua. It means the book of the upright. It's where they would collect all the yay stories, right? He said, your glory... That which makes you look good, O Israel, is slain on your high places, meaning in your mountains. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in the Philistine city of Gath. Publish it not in the Philistine streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be happy about it and rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised, the wicked, exult. You mountains of Gilboa, where Saul died, let no dew or rain fall upon you, nor fields of offerings. May you be cursed, for you are the land in which he died. For there, on your heights, the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul 
was not anointed with oil. They would anoint the leather shields with oil to keep them ready for battle. Or it could mean no longer will Saul be able to uh, anoint his shield with the blood of his enemies. He's done. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, both incredibly handsome in appearance and devoted in love, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were together. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Now, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. What does that song mean? As honoring as it is to Saul, it's a bit more about Jonathan. What did David just say? A lot of people do this. It kind of seems like a really improper relationship between the two guys. It's kind of like, well, you know, you love them more than women. So maybe that's like a little bit of homosexual stuff going on. And that is all over the place in different liberal Christian circles. It's not at all what it means. Here's what it means. Jonathan, you are my best friend. You're like my brother. I've had no one in my life that has ever sacrificed what you have sacrificed for me. All my life, my own brothers have wanted me gone. I've always been alone. I'm always on the run. I'm always being chased. Yet you put yourself out for me. You would go in and you went through enemy lines just to encourage me. You're the only one that allowed me to believe that I was the next one for the throne. The throne that you, my friend, were in line for. You gave up everything for me. You sacrificed everything. You even told your dad. You put your life on the line. And you said that I was to be king. No one has ever. I had Michael, my first wife, got stolen by Saul. Ahinoam, a wonderful woman. Uh, Abigail, another beautiful woman, they have never sacrificed like you've sacrificed for me. No one has loved me like that. My father hasn't loved me like that. Nobody has. Yet you are 100% committed and dedicated even though you knew you had to stand and fight with your dad. I just need you to know, man, my life will never be the same now that you're gone. I have a hole in my heart that's Mark Jonathan. That's what it means. So I close with this question. Was it right that Jonathan was with his dad when he died? And I don't, I don't know the answer. How was the story to play out? Is this right? Was Jonathan honorable? Now remember the son that didn't show up was called the man of shame. So obviously the family wouldn't like it. But was it right for the warriors, the brothers to stand side by side in battle with their dad? Was it honorable in their culture for him to say, I know, Dad, I don't agree with you. I know that you are not doing what God has, but I will not walk away from you. I will stand and fight alongside you. Father, I will honor you and I will love you, though I do not agree with you. Does that show more ministry? Or should the story have been written differently? Where Jonathan comes to his dad and he says, Dad, I understand that what I'm about to tell you, you're not going to be all right with. But I have to support David. 
It's not because I love him more than you. You know, dad, I love you and I've always been committed to you. But God has told me he is the next king of Israel and I must do everything I can to honor my Lord and honor my nation. And I will leave your cabinet. I understand this is a great dishonor to you, but I cannot stand by while the great king of Israel who is rising up is alone. Dad, I'm sorry, but I have to go join David. Which one's right? I don't know. I don't know. But I'll tell you this. Jonathan, one of the most gifted, most powerful, most seasoned warriors... Men of the highest integrity has no lasting value because his wagon's hitched to his dad and his dad ended up doing nothing. Now we can say, well, that's not true. He supported David. That's true. He helped David move into power. That is true. And maybe that's his legacy and maybe that's good enough. I just wonder, could such of a wonderful man like that have taken the hits and said, Dad, I can't be with you anymore. I've got to go where God's going. I don't know. What are, what are, you, what are you doing with your life? I mean, are we going to wrap this thing up however many years from now at your memorial? Poof, you're gone. What are you investing in? What matters? Are you living that life of worship? God, what do you want me to do? How should I align myself with you? God, uh, out of these priority lists, what's askew? How do I need to realign it? Lord, where do I need to spend my money? Where do I need to spend my time? How do I need to raise my children? God, what do you want? That's a life of worship. If you have never come to the realization until today that you have to hand the reins over to God to have any value, I want you to consider it right now. I'm going to ask you, we're about to pray, and I'm going to ask you that if you want to say, God, take over, I'm going to have you raise your hand. What that means is this. God, I don't want it to be about me anymore. I've made a mess of it. I'm screwed up in the very core of who I am. And no matter how hard I try to be a moral good person, I'm not with you. And so nothing else matters. My wickedness has consumed me and it's shown itself in selfishness. I'm tired of it and I must be rescued or I'm going to die like this. All that Jesus did on the cross must become real for you. That Jesus said, I know you're out of line. So therefore, I will not allow you to remain removed from my Father. I will go take the hit. I will go and die for you. I will cleanse you of all your sins. And I will shower grace upon you because I need you born again. I want you to start walking the God life that you were built to live. And you can't do that without the cross. If you have never said that before in your heart, doesn't matter necessarily how you talk it and how you fake it. 
if you've never owned that, I need you to own it today. I'm going to have you raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you and for you. But you have to pray it in your heart along with me because if you don't own it, it don't matter. When we're done with that, a video is going to go on. I want you to make your way up into this corner where it says pray. There's a prayer team that's going to be there and they have some resources for you. They're going to hand you on to how to live a life in line with Christ. All right? We all clear on it? Let's bow our heads in prayer. If you are done with you and you want to hand over the reins of your life for the first time to Jesus Christ, I want you to raise your hand. Who else? All right? There's a handful of brothers and sisters here. I get it. All right? You're raising your hand as a testimony to God. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we that have our hands up, we submit and surrender our lives afresh to you right now. That as we look, we are still trying to control the matter. We have said in our hearts that we are God and we are wrong. Only you are God. Only you matter. And so we hand our lives over to you afresh and we ask Jesus that that blood on the cross would fall upon us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that you would reconnect us together. Heavenly Father, we cannot be away from you for one more moment. We are not right inside without you. We have no purpose. We have no value. We have no direction. And yet in you, Jesus, we come alive. And the real us begins to emerge. Father, we surrender. We lay our guns down. We don't want to fight with you anymore. And we ask that you would take control. May your priorities be ours. May your value system be ours. May your perspective be ours. And may we live every life from this moment forward, though we do not know everything. We don't even know you very well. But what we know will we follow. We surrender our life again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.